Welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast, the official podcast of Unstoppable Domains. Join us each week to hear from leading experts in the exciting new fields of blockchain, cryptocurrency, and the decentralized web, where we talk about the future of the internet and what that means for humans like us. Not only will this podcast help you sound super smart around your friends, but you'll also learn how you can become a pioneer in this space and help lead the charge toward a more decentralized web. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Unstoppable Podcast. I'm your host, Diana Chen, and I'm here today with our guest, Danny Zuckerman. He's a co-founder at Three Box Labs, which is a company that's working towards advancing a more open web by breaking down data silos and putting users in control of their identity. Welcome, Danny. Thank you so much for being here. Hey, Diana. Thanks so much for having me. Awesome. Before we dive into Three Box Labs, which I'm really excited to talk to you about, and you're actually a company that Unstoppable has collaborated in the past with some of the features that we have going on. So uh, excited to talk to you about that as well. But before we dive into all of that, I'm curious to know a little bit more about your background and how you got into crypto in the first place. Yeah, of course. So I got in in 2017 and blockchain and the crypto ecosystem generally basically hooked me as the best coordination tool we've ever had as humanity. My background, I studied political philosophy and how societies and governments work together and how you can coordinate across very big scaled systems. My first job out of college was working with big companies as a strategy consultant. And my favorite projects there were thinking about org design and how you could try to improve how massive companies could work together. Then I jumped from there to the startup world and loved building products. So I was in the education space. It was really fun to see our customers start to use what we built, but I actually had more fun building the team than I did building the products and seeing how even at smaller scales, it's really hard to work together and to get people to do what you think they're going to do and get people to work together really effectively. So in 2016, 2017, I started going down the rabbit hole doing some reading and I started to see these incentivized networks as the most clear, most transparent, more scaled coordination tools we've ever had. And I was hooked after that, had to jump in. Awesome. Awesome. So you really dove into crypto from a different angle than most people. I feel like most people get in from Bitcoin or from, you know, the finance side of things or even from the tech side if you're a coder or a developer. But you really got in from like a very unique perspective. And I'm interested in that because I, I was also a political science philosophy major back in college, went to law school, did all of that. So I think I have a lot of the same interests as you when it comes to Web3 and digital identity and, you know, coordination, all of that. So I'm just wondering, like when you first started learning about all this stuff, what were some of your go-to sources for learning? And then even today, like what are some of your go-to sources for learning about the space from that sort of like organization coordination perspective? Yeah, I mean, it starts and in some ways almost ends on Twitter. I have to go back pretty far to remember what the best sources were at the time. But and this is like 2016 and you're right, I didn't come at it from the investing or Bitcoin angle. In fact, the opposite of that, I lived in San Francisco for 25 years and regrettably, from like 2010 to 2015, I actively distanced myself from Bitcoin because I thought it was just you know the next thing that everybody in San Francisco, everybody in the tech world was talking about. But I didn't really see the value or why it was exciting. It was only after I really had a lot of time to dive in. Um, and this, I had taken a sabbatical from work and was reading just everything I could get my hands on. And that's not just about tech. It was history and you know, history of religion and um, things that I was just, you know, had on my list among those was, okay, let me actually find out what blockchain is. And it took a whole bunch of different perspectives for it to really click in a way that made sense 
to me. I remember Chris Dixon had written a post about how blockchains and crypto networks could help you overcome the bootstrapping problem. So that was very much a tech and investing angle. Nick Sabo had written about social scalability. So kind of much closer to my political philosophy routes. And it was really the the mix of all of those things that brought it together. Now I find, you know, it's a different situation. There's way more that's written about it, but there's as much noise as anything else. And so it's about finding the people for me that I really trust their perspectives trust to sift through the noise and share good signal. And so finding the right people to start with on Twitter and see what they're talking about and listening to to dive in. Um, that's maybe not the most helpful advice, but that's where I always point people. That's a helpful thing to know. People can just go find your Twitter and see who you're following to you know get the best sources out there. Yeah, I didn't say I'm one of the people that you should be following for that, but I'll try and point people in the right directions from there. I think you are one of the people from my personal opinion. So I, I think people should definitely go follow you and then follow the people that you're following. For somebody who is brand new to the space, how would you explain Web3 to them? Like, I know this is a super broad question, but I'm just interested to hear like what angle you would sort of approach it from. So this is one of the hardest things to explain, like why this is so exciting. The thing that I kind of think about to try to understand the scale of it, and this isn't as concrete as I'd like it to be, but a few years down the road, apps built without some of these Web3 components will be like today, an application trying to build without support for mobile and without building with the cloud. Um, it is so foundational to how every experience is going to be built. If you think back to the 2000s um, or even like early 2010s before the iPhone was ubiquitous and people, if anything, they had, you know, one of those Nokia bricks or maybe they had a BlackBerry for work. Not only was there no sense of the types of things we can do on the move today. So the entire app ecosystem and Google Maps and sharing apps, like none of that existed. But the entire paradigm around the Internet was different because if you changed your telephone provider, at least in the US, you had to change your phone number. You had to change how everybody got in touch with you. Most people's primary email address before Gmail became widespread, and that was only in like 2007, 2008, was their email or their school account. Every time you changed schools or changed employment, you changed your email. And of course, we still do that to some degree today, but we have a personal email we use. And every time you joined a new company, you use the device that they gave you, use the apps that they gave you. And when mobile and cloud took over, not only do we get access to all of this new software and all these new capabilities, but the entire paradigm changed. And there was this wave of bring your own device. People didn't want to have their iPhone and be told by their company, you can't use it. You have to use this antiquated BlackBerry. And so everything about the relationship between you as an employee and your employer kind of changed. And this BYOD, you know, bring your own apps, bring your own data, bring your own way of working started to take over. And I think we're going to see that, but not for your hardware, not for your phone and computer, but for your data and your identity. You're going to bring your own ecosystem with you from website to website, service to service. And I heard it described recently as like each app becomes a docking station for your entire history of data. And then they serve you based on that. And so every app, every service online starts to morph to you, adapt to you, as opposed to what we have today, where each time you go to a new site, each time you go to a new service online, you have to adapt to it refill the same information, have a completely fragmented experience. Once we have these tools and once we start to build on them and see the pace pick up, I just think, you know, anyone building a new site online is going to have to use this because it'll feel so antiquated not to. 
Yeah, for sure. And then other than sort of just like being in the early days and not having all the tools that we need out there, what do you see as being some of the other hurdles or roadblocks that we have to jump over in order to make Web3 mainstream? Yeah, I don't think it's one thing. It'd be way easier if it was a year or so ago. It was key management and wallets weren't good enough. They were way too big of a hurdle. And everybody thought, oh, if we just have a better flow than MetaMask, we'll be able to get so many more users into the space. And that was a hurdle, but it was just the first one that everybody hit. It wasn't the one that was actually holding things back. What I think really needs to happen for this to become widespread is all of the tools that are being built need to work together better. So Unstoppable Domains and ENS are doing a great job making naming systems um, really prevalent. We're working really hard on kind of full identity and data systems. Folks like Textile and others working in the IPFS ecosystem and Arweave and SIA have kind of raw storage capabilities. Those need to work really well with the graph doing indexing and hosting providers. So all these pieces need to come together and work really well for us to have great experiences and for developers to be able to build great experiences easily that compete with Web2 alternatives. And until we have that, the the value to difficulty trade-off just isn't there. I think we're really close, but these pieces were really tough to build. And so a lot of us have been building more in isolation than I think we need to eventually. And so when these pieces start being used together, there start to be patterns to use them together. That's when I think we'll really start to see things take off. All right. So let's go ahead and dive into Three Box Labs. Uh, why don't you take us back to the beginning? How did you get the idea for Three Box? What what problem was it that you were trying to solve uh, when when you decided to build this out? Yeah. So I was working at a company called Uport as part of Consensus, which is a really big company and incubator in the in the space, especially around Ethereum. And my two co-founders, Joel and Michael, and I. Uh, Michael was one of the co-founders of Uport. He'd been working around decentralized identity for years. Joel had been there almost as long. I had been in the identity space basically that long, had joined them at Uport more recently. And we saw a few things happen around the same time. The first was that IPFS, um, distributed file storage protocol, became really usable. The other was the work we've been doing at Uport, which was really broadly like a research and development team around decentralized identity, one of these big promising areas in the space, but really early. We had solidified some big advances around how you could actually use identity in a, in a reliable way, including um, helping found the Decentralized Identity Foundation and solidify the DID, Decentralized Identity Spec, so that you could actually rely on it and build on it going forward. But we also saw this emerging need in the Ethereum and broader blockchain ecosystem of developers needed a way to manage data. And there was no way to do it at the time. And so you use an any application, and you know at the time, decentralized apps were really, really thin. They were basically like buy, sell, trade, stake, crypto. But there was nothing else in the app that we get used to in a normal application. Your profile, your contact list, your social graph, your user-generated comments and content, all of the things that make applications rich and fully featured, none of that could be done at the time, at least not without massive headache by developers. And they wanted to. They wanted to build full applications that served users. Um, and so we saw this need in the market and said, okay, identity, we make, made a bunch of advances, but really identity is not a product, it's an enabler. What it does is lets us manage data in a user-centric way, route to data in a user-centric way. So we're going to kind of make that an enabler of a product set that just gives developers what they need, which is a way to manage data. Um, and so 3Box basically started as, for the developers out there, a decentralized Firebase, a way to really easily in a single SDK manage databases for your app data, um, profiles for your users, and comments and other social apps, 
in a in a way that you didn't actually have to store it on a server. It was all stored on top of IPFS in a decentralized way. It was really the first way to do that, the kind of easiest way to do that. I think we probably really kickstarted a lot of the DAP usage of IPFS by wrapping it up in these other pieces that were needed by developers. Um, and so we wanted to take a really product-centric approach to some of these core capabilities we've been working on in the identity space for a while. Gotcha, gotcha. And so before we dive into how the product has evolved over time and uh, Ceramic and IDX and what we have going on now, one thing that you emphasize a lot is this notion of giving users the ability to have control over their identity. And so I'm just wondering, like, why is this for people, you know, maybe who haven't thought about this as much, like, why is this such an important thing to you? And why do you think this is like a super important thing as we build out Web3? Yeah, of course. And so identity is one of these words that means a million different things to a million different people. And so it is really important to talk about um, what it enables really practically. Let's first like look at like what identity looks like in kind of traditional web. And the place that most people look at it first is your login, um, your username and password. But there's actually like many, many components to that stack. Whenever you go to a website and say, this is who I am, then what happens after that, even if you, you, know, you remember your password or you recover it and you get in, then you get a personalized experience populated with all of your previous data and your friends. Um, identity is kind of the sum total of all of those interactions, and there's many, many gradations of it. But our identity, that means, is fragmented based on the application we're going to today because you have a different login and a different set of data and a different contact list and social graph for each application. Um, and so we actually don't have in any way a unified sense of identity on the web today. And we have a whole really fragmented one and one controlled by each individual application. And that's one of the things that we really want to flip in Web3 and that we need to flip in Web3 if we are going to have some of these magical experiences that we project out where apps can actually compose on the same data. that You can bring your data with you from, from service to service and app to app and have this much more seamless and rich experience. Um, and so identity is so critical as, again, it's, it's not the product, it's the enabler, and it's really the enabler of two different things. So in a world where data isn't stored with each individual application on their server, it has to be stored somewhere, and we think it should be on a decentralized network. But when lots of different users from lots of different apps are storing data on a single network, you need provenance and auditability over that information. You need to see who authored this information, did they have a right to, and whose is it to control, to access control out, to give access to others. And so authorship is one place where identity is really important, where I'm going to sign all of my data with my identifier. My, my DID is the technical thing, but with the keys in my wallet. And that way, it's very clear that this is my data. Um, and no one can fake it, no one can pretend to be me, and no one can use it without my permission. And so that's one is authorship over information, but the other is routing to my information. I go to a new application, if they don't have their own server with a user ID for me that they control, they need to be able to go back to find all the data that's relevant for them to give me a really great experience, whether that's to target the right the right tweets to me or the right ads or just to pre-populate my settings from last time so I'm not starting over each time. And they do need a way to go find the relevant data sets about me. And the way that we do that is they look at my the identifier I bring with me and then the information associated to it that tells them how to go route to all that information. 
And so identity in both these ways is the key to this much more decentralized approach to managing data online. Gotcha. Yeah, I I think it's super powerful. So then going back to um, talking about three box and, you know, you started out at the, as this like developer tool for managing data and then talk about how it's evolved over time. And then, you know, leading up to today, like ceramic and IDX are the biggest things and tell people what that's all about. Yeah. So again, we took a very product centric approach to three box and we really just wanted to solve this need. We saw if developers needed a way to manage data. Um, the fastest way to make that happen was to be opinionated about it, to wrap up the best in the market we saw for various pieces into a single bundle and make that really easy to use. And so that was at the time IPFS for file storage and then built on that Orbit DB as a decentralized database. So that was the only type of database you could use with 3Box. Um, and then we had some kind of custom logic to map from users' keys to an identifier and then an identifier to where their Orbit DB instances were actually stored. So there were some aspects of centralization there that users didn't have full control over. That was great. You know, about more than a thousand applications built on it, 50,000 users had profiles. So it definitely filled the market need at the time, but it was never the full vision because it was too opinionated. And we can't be telling application developers across Web3 what type of database they should use, how they should structure it, how they should define the data types. Uh, we needed a much more flexible system. What we set out to do was find the right abstraction to give developers the same tools of decentralized identity and data, but in a completely unopinionated way that worked with any blockchain or really any cryptographic key, any type of database or just file storage system with any kind of persistence method. Not all data should be stored on a global public network. Some data needs to be stored in a certain geography or with certain SLAs. Um, and so we wanted that capability that could manage data anywhere, but without the opinions that 3Box had. The key primitive that was needed for that was missing in the space at the time. And so that's really what led us to build Ceramic and IDX. And that, that primitive was basically um, dynamic data flows. So signed dynamic data. Um, so IPFS is really static. You can put an object there and find it by its hash. But if you're talking about user data and kind of ever-changing data, which is what's happening on the web, you need something that's much more flexible. Um, and so we built, basically built Ceramic on top of IPFS and IDX on top of that to be this way to, at the kind of highest level, write information on a decentralized network where it can be identified by, authored by, and routed to by an identifier controlled by either a user or an app, but in a completely decentralized way. Um, and so we can go more into what Ceramic or IDX actually is, but it was kind of the recognition that we needed this lower level protocol and primitive if we ever wanted to achieve our goals with 3Box that made us come down to that level. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I think what would be helpful is to maybe talk about some of the ways in which people can use Ceramic and IDX or some of the ways that like companies like Unstoppable, for instance, have used Ceramic and IDX to you know build out certain products. Yeah, of course. So um, I will say that we are on testnet with Ceramic right now, mainnet very, very soon. And so there's a lot more coming and I don't want to spoil the surprise of some of the apps that are building on it, but some of them are very public about it. And so I can share those. I'll talk about kind of each of the two levels. So Ceramic is this network for decentralized streams of information. So these streams are basically either documents or other data types that can be updated by the owner or the controller of that stream of data. Um, and so the most simple use case for that is 
document storage. So um, MongoDB pioneered and is the biggest player in the Web2 space, but just the ability to store really rich documents that you need to be able to reference, but do it so in a decentralized way rather than centralized way. And so we have a bunch of projects that are using Ceramic as that because they didn't really have a way to do that before um, because it adds this richness that just raw PFS doesn't have. And so you know, one example of that is ArcX, um, who's doing some really exciting things in the DeFi space around on-chain reputation and DeFi passports for really advanced lending protocols. Um, they need to have some information about reputation and credit score accessible to the protocol at all times in a really reliable way. And they needed basically a document store for that. And so that's what they're using Ceramic for. Others are using it just as like a content management system. So there's a place to publish blog posts. And so folks have built blog templates on top of Ceramic, where these are published and signed by DID, persisted on the network, but then any other application can go read the same blog post. And so it's this, not just headless CMS, but this decentralized CMS for any kind of content. That's kind of the Ceramic layer, but you can kind of think of these streams of data as being used for a lot more things as this gets going, like streams of weather information um, coming from anywhere where you can aggregate them together, streams of traffic info. And so people are working on that um, IoT sensor data where each sensor is in charge of its own data. So that, that's the ceramic layer. The even more exciting layer and what's being built on even more right now is IDX. Um, and IDX, it stands for Identity Index. It's the identity protocol built using ceramic. Again, we really built ceramic to enable IDX um, at the end of the day. And IDX is a way to attach um, information to a decentralized identity so that users have an index of all of their information from every different app and can take it with them from place to place. And these apps don't need to run a database keeping it themselves. I'd say a couple of use cases that are getting kind of the, the most uh, adoption really early. So the first is the ability to link multiple different accounts across the kind of Web3 and blockchain space to the same identity. So right now, in addition to Ethereum, we support Cosmos, Near, Avalanche, Polkadot via Moonbeam, and a few others. And so now, instead of just using you know, a public key to identify yourself, you can link all these keys to one identifier and have the same profile and metadata and information across all your different apps, across all of your different you know, DeFi projects and governance applications and DAOs. But not only that, the same structure can be used to store the comments you make on boardroom or snapshot about governance, um, the upvotes that you make, the posts, that, the replies that you make. And so all this data that makes up a full application gets stored with you on your IDX um, so that you can bring it from place to place. Um, and so there's about 250 projects signed up right now to go live on mainnet as soon as we release. About 200 of them are using it uh, using ceramic for some form of identity or portable reputation in this way. You brought up this like notion of being able to carry your your digital identity with you from place to place. Can you give some concrete examples of how you think this is going to play out? Like in maybe 10 years when this is mainstream technology and everybody's doing this, like what is that going to look like? What pieces of my digital identity am I carrying from you know point A to point B, and what are these things? Yeah, so I think in 10 years it will be everything, except on some really like legacy applications. Maybe the most exciting one is your social graph. I think that maybe makes the biggest change to kind of the structure of the web today. And that's going to start in small ways. I don't think we'll have to wait for 10 years. I think a few months from now, you'll see a lot of applications 
where you're storing your watch lists of address or your followers in apps like Showtime um, in IDX so that they can be used across different apps. Uh, MetaMask, um, you have a whole bunch of accounts right now. Those will be backed up to IDX so that any new DeFi app, instead of getting you to enter your watch list of apps or of, of addresses, can just use that. And so we'll start to see this happen soon. But if you flash forward 10 years, your primary social graph will be controlled by you on this decentralized network. And that's really powerful because if you think about the web today, whether you're talking about enterprise or consumer, a huge portion of the apps, the way that they build their moat is network effects and trying to own network effects around connections, especially social connections. That is the way that they can lock in an advantage and make sure that no matter how well other products and startups innovate, you're not going to go leave for the new upstart because your social network is on their platform. So when you own your own social graph, when you have all these connections and every app is building on this shared social graph, it completely changes the incentives for how people build applications because instead of trying to attract you know as many uses as they can and lock them in with these kind of proprietary social graphs, that's that's not going to be the route to actually have a good business. The route to have a good business is going to build something new and valuable that shares the same social graph with everyone else. And so you don't have a cold start problem every time that you join a new app. You're operating off the same data. You just use the best interface and the best products without having to start over each time. Um, and that goes for lots of other data too. But I think where where people will most feel that is is our social networks. Another aspect of what you're building at Three Boxes, I'm curious to know about the community that you've built there. How would you describe the community that you currently have? And then looking forward, you know, how do you hope to expand that? Like, is do you hope that Web two builders right now will start using Three Box, like get exposure to Three Box and start using that, and you know, start building Web three products? Or like, how would you describe your current community? And then what's your long term vision for what that should look like? Yeah. So community is everything to us. When we first started to build 3Box, we said the way we're going to succeed is by constantly shipping and iterating, not just sending product out in the world, but with the community. Um, and so we are where we are today simply because of that, being in the community, building alongside them. And again, about 50,000 profiles on 3Box, but the vast majority of those are developers in the Ethereum space. And so that has been our Kind of starting point community is Ethereum builders and those especially looking to build things that go beyond DeFi and our kind of true Web3 experiences. As we've started to launch Ceramic, one really cool thing that we've seen is how many interrelated communities there are that have really overlapping visions for the web. And so, um, you know, some people talk about kind of the blockchain space, others the Web3 space. If you get into kind of IPFS and distributed data, talk about the D-Web space. Researchers often talk about local first development. There's a great research lab called Ink and Switch that we follow closely that did a lot of good work here. And then there's a ton of people and, and companies building for more and more lightweight application models that you know push more to the front end and kind of API models like Jamstack or more edge computing. And what's interesting is while they're not all like what we think of as core Web3, they are all pushing in really similar directions, not completely. Um, but as we push the research and specs and now the, the actual development of Ceramic further, we see this because of what it does, linking information in a blockchain agnostic, key agnostic way, it really is becoming a little bit of like a glue between these different communities because it's a piece that none of them have. I'd say that our biggest goal for 
you know, growing the community going forward, in addition to continuing to build really closely with the community, more and more open source contributions, more like less and less line between the core team and the, the projects building on Ceramic is to bring more different communities that share a piece of the same vision together um, so that we're not doing things that long-term won't be interoperable so that we are finding patterns that have worked in the D-Web space and applying them to Web3 applications and vice versa. Um, because again, there's so much happening and so much advancing at such a fast clip. It's tough to keep up, but bringing these folks together and making sure that we're learning together, I think is going to advance us all much more quickly. Um, so the next few years, that's definitely a big focus. Yeah, for sure. And I, I want to dig deeper into this you know, concept of building community in crypto, because I know this is something that you think about. I see you tweet about this all the time, and you've got a couple of pretty epic tweet storms um, on this topic. And so the first one I wanted to ask you is you have a tweet thread on composable communities, and your argument is sort of that like composable communities are inevitable. And so can you talk a little bit more about that? Like, what, what do you mean by composable communities? And then why do you think it's inevitable? Yeah, so I talked a couple minutes ago about how one of the really impactful things to shift to this user-owned model from today's app-owned model is our social graph. And when we actually have control over our social graph and can bring it from app to app and service to service, we, we bring the network effects with us and every app and every user is sharing in those network effects. But it's not true that you want exactly the same social graph in every experience you go have, right? I'm... Uh, in an apartment building, and we have a WhatsApp group, or maybe we have um, you know, a social network for our little community here. That's a really different graph and set of people than my, you know, whatever replaces LinkedIn in the future, the, all of my professional contacts. And that is also a very different group of people than the contacts that I want to get in touch with and have really great experience with at DevCon. So these are all different experiences that call for different communities. But if we think about it instead of completely separate communities, but rather a single social graph that each of those applications or experiences draws on, then we have this idea of composable communities where, you know, I might have kind of all of my contacts, you know, stored somewhere on my IDX and my, you know, my neighborhood app draws on some of them. And then I go to DevCon and that draws on a different subset. And then I looked at my all of my professional contacts and maybe that draws on a subset that overlaps a lot with those other two, but not completely. And so this ability to kind of pick and choose the right subsets of my overall social graph where, and I make a new friend in one place and not only does it get added to my community here, but also to all the other relevant ones, that lets me move between my different communities in a much more seamless way. And instead of feeling like they're the same or completely different, they just overlap, which is the reality when we have different communities in real life. And so it's finally the ability to mirror what we do in real life and how we think about our friends and networks in real life um, when we're on the internet. And then the other thing I wanted to ask you about is um, you, you have this other epic tweet thread about how do you balance social versus economic motivations in forming communities? And so like, one point that I thought was interesting is, you know, like if you like say you need to make a move and you want to recruit some friends to come over and help you move stuff into a truck, if you offer to pay them like 25 bucks, they're going to be like um, <laughs> 25 bucks, like to help you move for a few hours. 
you know, but then if you offer them like, hey, I've got beer, I've got pizza, you know, come over, help me move. They're a lot more likely to that's like a much more enticing offer, even though you're, you're offering them less monetarily than, you know, the 25 bucks or 50 bucks. So I thought that was a very interesting concept. And I thought there was a lot in the tweet thread. So if, however, you can sum it up best. Uh, I, I just want people to hear about that because I think there's so many good points in, in there. Yeah, I definitely won't try to summarize the tweet thread. Um, at some point, maybe I'll write an article that makes a little more sense of it. So what actually got me into the space, I mentioned that it was, how do we organize people more effectively? How do we coordinate better? And that was the thing that I thought was most promising about the space, but it also most worried me back in 2016, 2017, was as powerful as tokens are as a monetary incentive to line up a network, they're only a monetary incentive. And there's this view at the time, and I think it still persists a little bit today, that if we can design the perfect mechanisms in this perfect network with the perfect token allocations, we can get everybody to do exactly what we want and it will be perfect. And you know, it's this kind of tech utopia. But the reality is people aren't perfectly rational actors based purely on you know, monetary motivation. We have lots of other motivations that impact what we do. Um, and so money is one of them, or kind of financial interest is one of them. But that's kind of the, the most basic. That is the one-time game interacting at the market or on the stock market. I want to maximize my interest. That's not how we judge what our behavior should be when we're in longer-lasting situations and experiences. We also do things that maybe are not as good for our pure monetary self-interest in the interest of creating trust and reputation for ourselves long-term, or just because we think it's the right thing to do, which is kind of the, the cultural impact on you know how we should behave and what our motivation should be. And those are really strong. Um, in communities, especially, those are the driving forces. Communities come together around shared values and shared norms and reputations that keep each other in tech. They don't come together around monetary incentives. And there's been a ton of really interesting research about what happens when you mix motivations, what happens when you have a community and maybe the community is not doing as much as the leader wants it to do and you start to introduce monetary incentives. And instead of creating the effects that are wanted, oftentimes it actually just backfires. And now you've crowded out the reasons people were doing things in the community before, the reputational effects, the shared values, the desire to just be part of something that feels bigger than yourself, as soft as that sounds, empirically, you introduce money and that actually crowds those out and you get worse outcomes. People do less. And so as we have some waves in the space that are introducing tokens into more and more experiences, things like social tokens or curating DAOs for NFTs, these things that were before non-monetary, that were communities, I think we have to be really careful that maybe tokens are actually going to backfire. Maybe they're going to, sure, add a monetary incentive, but crowd out all the other incentives that were creating these epic open source communities before. Um, and so I think it's really interesting. I hope that people do continue to experiment. That's not at all a call to stop doing this, um, but it is a call to learn from what's working and what's not because there's some really huge downside scenarios where we actually just like hurt community on the web. Um, the way that I think a lot of people thought early on that social networks like Facebook were increasing connection on the web and the narrative was very positive. The long-term effects were they turned all communication on the web into a performance to, to build status. And we don't want to turn every community on the web into an opportunity to make money. Then we will really lose what makes communities so valuable. 
So in your view, where do you draw the line between social and economic incentives? Because I agree with everything you've said, but you know, obviously, like if you have a DAO, for instance, and you're asking people to contribute to the DAO and they're putting in time, maybe at first it's like, okay, this is great. Like I've got a full-time job. I'm putting in some extra time on the side to this DAO because I'm really passionate about the vision uh, and, and all of this stuff. And I love the community. But at a certain point, it's like, I can't be putting in, you know, like full-time hours into this DAO without getting paid at all because I need a way to live. So how, I guess, like, where do you draw the line between the social and the economic? Yeah, I mean, to start with, I don't know. But I think that it's part of it is about being really clear and upfront about what the purpose of that DAO is. And some DAOs will have a purely economic purpose, and that is completely fine. And building monetary incentives more into those, I think, is great. Um, just like not every group is a community. Um, some groups are actually just collectives that are designed to come together to achieve a goal. And that goal can be whatever. But I also think, you know, some have purposes that are purely about values and maybe you want to be much more careful there. I also think that they can be mixed. Um, it's just how do you mix them? And so maybe there's staff within, uh, or elected positions that are putting in a ton of work and those draw a salary because there are certain expectations on what they're doing. But maybe not every single Discord message or GitHub pull request should be rewarded where you're now saying, not only is there some monetary incentive, but everything that happens in this community is getting tracked and rewarded. Then you start to uh, maybe encroach on the other pieces more. Um, but I come back to, I don't think we know. I think we need to, to watch what happens. And it's probably different for every community because these are all really complex. I think with a lot of things in crypto, there are no answers right now. There's only speculation. But um, I definitely think it's, you know, people like you that like think a lot about this and, you know, have done the research. I, I think that's the steps that we need to take to move forward and build out a Web3 that is great and beneficial to all and doesn't repeat the mistakes that we made in Web2 and Web1. So switching gears a little bit here, I, I want to talk about something else that you've done in the past that isn't like directly related to crypto, but maybe there are some tie-ins. You actually are an author of a book. You co-authored this book with your mom. It's called Identity Theft, Rediscovering Ourselves After Stroke. Can you talk a little bit about this book and like what inspired you to co-write this book with your mom? Yeah, well, I'll say first, it is definitely my mom's book more than mine. Um, she was a professor and she studied, among other things, identity and what our identity means to us, in particular, what identity in the workplace means to us, and what happens when we feel a disconnect between who we are at home and who we are in the workplace. Um, and how do we actually think about this concept that seems so basic, but is actually so hard to pin down, you know, who we are and what drives us. And in 2010, uh, she had a stroke that wiped out a massive amount of her mobility and a massive amount of her speech. And uh, it was devastating in a lot of ways, but amongst them is she could no longer continue as professor. And she, her identity was hugely made up of her professorship and her teaching and creating knowledge and studying this and sharing it. And uh, in her journey and in her recovery, she found there were very few resources to think about the emotional journey back from stroke um, or from any traumatic brain injury like it. And there was lots of resources on the physical rehabilitation, but she was a new person in a lot of ways. She had to make a new life and figure out who she was, if not a professor. And in talking to other stroke survivors and others who had had traumatic events like that, this was a really shared experience and no one really knew where to turn. And so she decided after um, five plus years of 
of working on recovery that she was going to be the one to start to create some momentum and materials around this. Um, of course, it was harder because she has severe aphasia, which is the inability to express herself and talk or write fluently. Um, and so she needed a co-author, uh, frankly, more than one. Um, and so I did the bulk of the actual writing. We had a, a ghostwriter who had actually done a, a first take on it. My dad played a huge role too. Um, but we collaborated on this again, partly during the sabbatical I had taken um, to put together her story and the stories of 20 to 30 other stroke survivors and their families and their journeys around what is it that we actually use to define ourselves after a trauma. Um, and this is where a lot of the the understanding of how identity should be represented online came from for me. We tend to think of identity as really static and uh, singular as if we just have one identity and a very individual thing. But if you really dive deep into people and how they think about themselves and, and frankly, how academics think about identity, it's, it's not static, it's not individual, um, and it's not singular. Our identities are plural. We have many. They are dynamic and always changing, and they're very social things. Um, and so, yeah, that writing that was a huge learning experience, but also um, something that made me see that this was really something we needed to do better in what I think of as our digital society online. Yeah, for sure. It, it sort of makes a lot of sense now, you know, like growing up with a mom who is a professor in this area, the, the aspect of identity and then you developing this, you know, idea and then sort of like thinking about what that's going to look like in the future. I think that all ties in really nicely. And so now having gone through the process of writing a book, would you say that that's something that you'd want to repeat again one day? Like, do you think you'll be an author again? Or was this sort of just like a one off like personal project? And you're like, that was a lot. <laughs> Um, I, I won't rule it out. Um, it's not something I will seek to do for its own sake. I have enough trouble finding the time to write a blog post these days, let alone a book, but I did learn a lot from it. I think there's very few ways to hone your thinking and get access to pretty incredible people and their stories compared to writing something and really trying to push it far. So if there's a topic that I think is calling for it, I won't rule it out, but definitely not on my agenda right now. Makes sense. Makes sense. All right. So before we close out, I, I want to do a quick explain your tweet segment. This is where I go through your Twitter and pull out some. Okay. You know all about this and you've got so I mean, I had like way too many to choose from. This was hard, uh, but I've got a few here. The first tweet I have, I, I thought this was interesting because, you know, as mo we move forward, a lot of people are talking about pseudonymity, anonymity. Um, and I think that is going to play a big part in our digital identities in the future. And so this tweet is from April 21st, 2021. You said a trend we're going to see pick up is networks with high rewards for positive reputations and threat of bans. Anti-civil and negative reputation are incredibly hard if you insist on pseudonymity, which many will. Alternative is strong incentives to build credibility and not risk it. Do you want to explain what you meant by that? Yeah, I can try. Even I'm confused listening to that played back to me. <laughs> um, so public-private key pairs um, and these kind of cryptographic identifiers are great for a lot of reasons. Among them is we don't actually have to reveal who we are in every interaction. So we have this kind of authenticity of knowing this interaction came from this address, and maybe that address is associated to some information about the person, but maybe it's not. And that's really great for privacy and really great for being able to represent ourselves in different ways that aren't necessarily tied back to our, our one true self, because again, identities aren't singular. Um, the problem with that is some systems do call for users not being able to have many different accounts. And so a prime example with that, with, of that would be something that's democratic where you want to have each person have a vote. And it doesn't work if 
I sign up with 15 different addresses and come vote from each of them. And so how do you protect against that for those use cases? And it's not quite so binary. There's a lot of things in between. But I think one of the things that will protect against that, instead of trying to make it impossible for me to have 15 different accounts, is to have systems where those who have established a lot of reputation, a lot of information around their identifier, even if it's not a a legal identity attached to it, get more weight or get rewards for participating. And so what that means is there's an incentive for me to participate from the same address or same identifier over and over because then my rewards go up. And if I misbehave or am caught trying to cheat in some way, then I'm going to get kicked out and have to start over and I'll lose all of those rewards. And so it's just instead of trying to say, we're going to make it impossible to have multiple accounts, say, we're going to create good incentives for you to keep using one account or just a couple or whatever the use case calls for. And so kind of doing it in a positive, using the carrot more than the stick to get people to just interact in the way that you want them to. Gotcha. Gotcha. That makes sense. All right. This next tweet I have, there's a lot going on here too. So hopefully uh, you have a good way of explaining this one. Well, this is from March 25th, 2021. You said, network effects create natural monopolies. Monopolies unchecked by competition have excessive social and economic power. Kirby monopoly has always relied on inefficient government regulation or services. Crypto lets us harness natural monopolies rather than be subjected to them. Do you want to explain what you meant by that? Yeah, so this ties also into what we talked about earlier with social graphs and and the business model today and how they're built on them. I think despite how much we talk about network effects in tech, people still underrate just how powerful they are. And it is incredibly hard for any challenger to overtake an incumbent that has really strong network effects around the data and the interactions and the content or whatever else you want to talk about. And um those network effects are strong enough to create what are essentially natural monopolies online. Natural monopolies is an economic term used for things like railroads or utilities where, and I am sure that some economist watching this is going to yell about how I get the definition wrong here. So don't take this as the perfect definition, but basically when the most efficient number of providers for any market is one, that's a natural monopoly. Um, like a railroad. You don't want a whole bunch of companies laying down railroad tracks across the country because it's way too expensive. It's it's not efficient for the amount of demand for railroad tickets. But if you just have one railroad then and it's owned by a company, they can charge whatever they want because they have a monopoly. And that's also really extractive and bad for everybody. And so what usually happens in those cases in the physical world or in kind of traditional industry is the government regulates the natural monopolies. That's why utilities aren't private companies for the most part, or at least not private companies that operate in a free market. They have to be regulated. I think that, again, despite how much we talk about network effects, people underrate how strong they are. And what they really are are natural monopolies online, where because of how valuable having your social graph and your network and all your data is in any given thing, oftentimes the most efficient number of providers for a professional social network is one. It's actually way worse if we're all spread across LinkedIn and LinkedIn's three closest competitors, because then we're not all together. And so if network effects create these natural monopolies, it means that just breaking them up once isn't going to do a whole lot because we're going to trend back towards the same state. And what that means is that the internet just creates natural monopolies in these kind of network-driven industries. um, And that's inevitable. But what's not inevitable is that they are controlled by a single company who can extract all the value out of it for their own profits. And by putting those network effects on a shared public network, something like Ceramic, 
we can all share in the benefits of that natural monopoly. And instead of it being something that a company can use to extract all the value out of the use case, it's something that actually makes everything built on it more valuable, becomes a shelling point for that use case. Um, so not sure if I helped clarify that tweet or just made it more confusing, but that's at least an attempt to explain it a little bit. I, I thought you did a great job explaining that. It makes a lot more sense to me now. All right. And then I've got one more tweet. This is just like a fun, silly one. Um, and this is from April 18th, 2021. You said one of these things seems not like the others and it's a photo. So it's probably not the best one to call it on a podcast considering this is a visual, but it's a photo of a wooden pole in what looks to be like the middle of the woods. And the sign, there's a sign on the pole that says hunting, shooting, trapping, and dog training prohibited. <laughs> Where did you see the sign and why is dog training part of this? This was, uh, this was in Pennsylvania, visiting my girlfriend's parents' house and going for a hike nearby. Um, I think that I, I mostly just made it abundantly clear to all my followers that I grew up in San Francisco and live in New York now and I'm not familiar with, um, with dog training as part of hunting. Uh, I still am not particularly familiar, but it was pointed out to me that uh, there is a group there. But it, yeah, dog training felt a little out of place amongst the other ones. I guess I'm I'm not familiar with the correlation between dog training and hunting either. Is is dog training a part of hunting? Is that a code word for something? I think that some some people hunt with dogs who play some role in the hunting process, but we have hit the edge of my knowledge still, so I can't really help make that one any more clear. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you so much, Danny, for being here. I know you're super busy coming off of Miami. You've got a lot of work to do, so I really appreciate you taking the time. Before you go, just tell people where they can find you if they want to connect with you personally, and then tell people where they can go to learn more about Ceramic and IDX, and maybe if there's like you know any anything cool you've got coming up that you're ready to release that you want to tease or give people you know a heads up on, feel free to shout that out as well. Yeah, absolutely. So I am on Twitter at D-A-Z-U-C-K, Dazuck. But much more interestingly, come find us in the ceramic community, chat.ceramic.network. Um, it's thousands of developers building incredible things, talking about a lot of the topics that we talked about today in our community. The ceramic mainnet launch is imminent, maybe before this podcast even airs. Um, so definitely check out blog.ceramic.network for any news there. IDX, again, is the identity protocol built on top of it. Um, that's IDX.xyz uh, and hundreds of applications coming soon. Frankly, more exciting than our release is all of the things that are being built on it. So watch out for some really cool new features from Boardroom and from SourceCred, Rabbit Hole, um, and a bunch of others in the space. We're really excited about what people are doing. Frankly, it is far beyond what we expected to see this early. And so it's it's going to be exciting time. So yeah, chat.ceramic.network. We're also Ceramic Network on Twitter. Would love to chat with any of you who are interested in this stuff. Awesome. Thanks again so much, Danny. Thank you listeners for tuning in. And we'll be back again soon with another episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. Thanks so much, Diana. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. If something we said today resonated with you, please rate, subscribe, and download our podcast and share this episode on social media with your network. And remember, the fun doesn't have to stop when the episode ends. You can continue this conversation with us on Twitter by tweeting your questions, thoughts, and ideas to Unstoppable Web. We look forward to chatting with you and thanks again for listening.